Hello, and welcome to the Talent Empowerment Podcast, where we lift up people leaders so they can lift up their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Finn, co-founder and CEO of LegUp. Together, we'll learn how to drive people innovation, how to transform HR into people ops, and how to secure buy-in to disrupt the status quo. And as I like to say, it's finally time to stop smoking on airplanes and update your people strategy. Let's transform your organization and move from a culture of talent management to talent empowerment. This week's episode of the Talent Empowerment Podcast is brought to you by LegUp's Talent Insurance, an inclusive people development platform designed to help HR leaders empower their people through one-on-one professional coaching. With results like a 66% improvement in avoiding burnout, a 54% jump in leadership skills, and a 73% increase in job satisfaction, LegUp guarantees improved employee well-being, productivity, and retention. In fact, they ensure it. Your people stay or they pay. Visit LegUp, that's L-E-G-G-U-P dot com to learn more. And without further ado, this is Talent Empowerment. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Talent Empowerment Podcast, where we lift up people leaders so they can lift up their organizations. I am your host, Tom Finn, and we have an amazing guest today. Mariah Driver is here. Welcome to the show, Mariah. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Well, uh, we are thrilled to have you. And if you don't know Mariah, she is the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Webflow, where she works to design systems and experiences that enable everyone to show up authentically and grow to their full potential. Uh, Through all of her work, she questions, uh, reimagines, and redesigns systems and practices that uh, ensure that all people can gain equitable opportunities to build a better world. Uh, Mariah's work is grounded in her training and research in social and scientific methods, uh, critical race theory, and organizational psychology. Now, Mariah, you have a really interesting story. I can't wait to dig into the initiatives. But before we go there, how does one become the head of DEI at an emerging technology company? If you ask the right questions to the right people, sometimes it happens accidentally, um, which is actually exactly how it happened for me. Um, I think I started at Webflow and on the marketing team when we were under 30 people. Uh, We are now, four years later, over 400 people. And in between the under 30 and the over 400 and the four years that transpired in between, um, I, I... a certain point asked my CEO if we had any plans to diversify the team or um, think about how when we scaled our team, we could use that as an opportunity to uh, focus on hiring underrepresented groups um, who were currently absent or marginalized on the team. And asking that question resulted in about a year long exploration with him um, and really big kudos to him for kind of stumbling through that process with me of of just trying to figure out where to start. Um, And then ultimately, as it happens, working for a early stage startup is uh, if you identify a need uh, on the team and you are the closest person to having the skill set and training to meet that need, uh, typically you end up taking it on either formally or informally as your job title. So uh, that's how I ended up 
coming into the work, um, I did do, uh, my, my education definitely helped me. Um, and I also will say that my identity helped me, um, in terms of just understanding what it means to be underrepresented and marginalized, um, at a technology company. Um, but to be honest, uh, when I first was offered the opportunity to, uh, take on this title and, and this work full time, um, I, A, thought, nope, I am the wrong person for it. So I think that to answer your question, how does someone become a head of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Usually you kind of have to get convinced to do it and you have to work through a ton of imposter syndrome. Um, but I also was, you know, hesitant in the sense of it already felt like being a marginalized identity in tech was hard enough, um, let alone being a marginalized identity in tech trying to fix tech's problems with the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, from that uh, lens. And so uh, the reason why I ended up saying yes after saying, mm, maybe not, probably not uh, several times was that uh, our leaders and especially the CEO made sure that, um, you know, I knew I was going to have enough influence and power and access to resources to really enact change. So that's how I got here. Kind of a windy, twisty, turny road. Well, it, it sounds like it was a lot more than an accident. Uh, it sounds like you were there early stage, you had some great skills, you asked the right questions, and you had a CEO who was sharp enough to say, hey, let's figure this out together and let's work together to figure out how we, how we change the view of tech and underrepresented uh, people in organizations. I think that's brilliant. So now that you're in the role, um, you mentioned this idea of imposter syndrome. Are you are you feeling anything as a leader? Now you've got this big responsibility. You got the weight of this organization on your shoulders. Does it does it feel any different? I would definitely say that I don't think there's been a single day in my life when I haven't <laughs> I haven't had that imposter syndrome sitting on my shoulder, um, reminding me, you know, very cruelly, like I don't think you should be doing this. I don't think you know what you're doing. I don't think you know what you're saying. Um, but I I will say that I have worked through a lot of that and part of um, part of being good at this work and part of being effective in this job is focusing less on being right or having the answers or pursuing areas um, or pursuing problems that I'm confident I can solve and just focusing on asking the right questions, asking the questions no one else is asking, even if they feel scary to ask because we don't have the answers um, and just having a lot of vulnerability, I think is a huge part of doing this work. Um, and it's also uh, important to have a level of humility doing this work and acknowledging that you don't have access to everyone's experience. Um, you're never going to get it right 100% of the time. Um, and that that's not, if you're so focused on that, I think that uh, you end up actually doing a disservice to the job itself. So I will say that I think my imposter syndrome at times, of course, is kind of my Achilles heel. Um, but I also will say that I think that it comes with a level of awareness and humility and vulnerability that really turns into a strength in a lot of contexts. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, leaders that are authentic and are really true to themselves and true to their people can create so much change uh, for, for a positive um, wave of employees. And I feel like those that are, those that are stuck in their ways, those that are uh, afraid of innovation, those that don't want to try to fail, 
those are the folks that really hurt their organizations when they're not being authentic and being honest and being vulnerable. So um, hats off to you. Uh, that's why you're on the show. That's why we adore you and the work that you're doing. Um, so thank you for, for taking that leadership role. So I guess the question then is like DEI, right? Like it's such a big topic. It's so important, not just to organizations, but culturally around the world. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is DEI. How do you see this in the organization fitting today and certainly long-term? What I said when I first started this job was that my main goal was to work myself out of a job. So uh, my hope was that I did such a good job um, in advancing and accelerating diversity, equity, and inclusion to the point where it was just part of the status quo um, and that our systems were automatically producing equitable outcomes and that our systems were automatically um, rewarding inclusive behaviors and um, you know disincentivizing exclusionary or harmful behaviors. Um, and that you know we were being able to recognize diverse talent without even having to think about what it would do for our demographic representation um, that I wouldn't be needed in this we wouldn't need a head of DEI anymore so that was what I you know I, I wrote that in a blog post when I first announced the role is I hope that one day I work myself out of a job um, and I think that that stands true today that I hope that my ultimate hope for diversity equity and inclusion as a field and as kind of an area um, of both study and work is that it becomes something that is not its own title, but that it is embedded into what we expect of every leader, um, what we expect of every um, product team is that inclusion and accessibility uh, in the products they're developing are just part of their job. It's not someone else's job to kind of have to advocate for those things um, and that uh, yeah, ultimately it becomes something that is a function within every part of the business and not just an independent function that's trying to influence other areas of the business. So um, that's my hope for this field and my hope for you know my own role is that eventually maybe I'll be able to go into a leadership position where this isn't my formal title, but something that I, I use to kind of up-level the work that I'm doing, um, yeah. Well, I think, I think that's a beautiful future state that we can uh, be so integrated uh, from a people standpoint that there really is no need for the job because it just is what the company is uh, and it is what our society is. And I think that's, um, th that's one heck of a goal uh, to, uh, to start to lay down the path towards. So um, I, I just think that's fabulous. So let's, let's talk a little bit about you. So imposter syndrome, uh, up and comer, starts with the company, ask the right questions of the CEO. You've done uh, and taken on some challenges that, that most wouldn't uh, or most could be afraid to try. So what are you most proud of? What gets, what gets you up in the morning and you think, gosh, I'm so proud of this work that I did? That's a really good question and one that I think as DEI leaders, we very, very rarely take moments to celebrate the wins just because it feels like there are so few wins uh, compared to the amount of opportunities and areas for improvement and places to push systems. Um, 
But I think to answer your question, those I have an answer that's personal and professional. So the personal answer is I am really proud of um, my willingness to go outside of the status quo um, and approach this work from a different perspective um, and to try things that haven't been done with clear goals and intentions for why I'm approaching it that way um, and with a lot of integrity and like why that I believe that that is the most impactful and honest way to do the work. So, um, you know, I'm proud of the fact that from the start, I advocated for and expected that our affinity group leaders would be paid. Um, that wasn't a question for me. I wasn't going to allow us to create an affinity group program unless we were able to compensate our leaders. Um, and even in how I work with leadership is like, I, you know, expecting that we're willing, you know, creating space with our leaders where we're comfortable having uncomfortable discussions about identity, about the work we're doing, about the mistakes we're making. Um, and so it's really hard to strike a balance and I still work on it every single day, but it's hard to strike a balance between keeping people accountable, holding people accountable and making sure that you're centering the most marginalized in any given context and that you're not protecting the feelings of the majority dominant group um, while also keeping people in the room who are the ones holding power and who are also the ones who are feeling guilty um, and feeling like, uh, you know, they want to be the leader with all of the answers. And when it comes to race, they don't know what to say. So they're not going to say anything because they don't want to, you know, say the wrong thing. Totally. And it's hard to, it's hard to strike that balance of making sure that you're centering the people who deserve to be centered in this work while also keeping the other people in the room by making sure they trust that I am not going to view them as a bad person for saying the wrong thing. Um, I will view them as a brilliant leader for saying the wrong thing and having the bravery and vulnerability to admit to their mistake and talk about what they learned and encourage everyone on their team to do the same. So I'm proud of myself for walking that line um, and you know being on that exhausting and oftentimes like traumatic personally because of the race you know being black and a black woman it's not always easy to create that space for white male leaders um, but I'm proud of myself for for staying in it um, and keeping them in the room and, and making progress um, with that um, and then I think professionally um, in, in the work that I'm doing at Webflow I'm really proud of our team for being willing to be so transparent with each other, with our community, with the public about our work. Um, and that means being really transparent about our demographic data, um, being really transparent about what we are committing to, what we can't commit to and why, um, and making sure that every prospective candidate, for example, has an opportunity to talk to a member of the identity group they belong to and us to tell that member of the team, tell them anything you want, the good and the bad. We don't want anyone joining Webflow under false pretenses and failing them because we set expectations about what this experience would be. Um, and just trusting that um, if we give people information 
what, you know, the good and the bad um, and the ugly, that uh, they have a choice. They get to choose whether or not this is an organization they want to join and they want to help us better um, and improve and can, you know, contribute to. Um, or if this is an organization that's not set up for their success and we're happy that they find hopefully somewhere else that can be that for them. Um, but I really do think it's earned us a ton of trust both internally and externally for us to just be really honest and transparent in this work and be okay sitting in the uncomfortable truths of what that says about us as an organization, um, but also being really willing and excited to celebrate what that shows about the progress we've made. Yeah, there's there's no roadmap on uh, on race and communications in the office and and feelings and emotions and uh, <laughs> diversity of thought. I mean, there's there's no roadmap that any of us get to say this is how you're going to behave with this identity group and this is how you should behave with that identity group. And I think if we just look at it through the lens of compassion and trying mm -hmm. to understand others and be really thoughtful about that, then we can create change. We just need to listen mm -hmm. a little bit more mm -hmm. than we talk and try yeah. to understand other perspectives. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. And this is so interesting because, um, I get asked all the time, and this is completely understandable. We're humans, we're lazy, we want shortcuts, and we also want to get things right. Like, we just don't like failing. I get asked all the time, what can I do to be a more inclusive leader? Like, and you know, people want a one pager, right? Because they're busy, they don't want to read things anymore. Um, or they say, what can I do to um, really, uh, you know, be a, an inclusive, you know, what can I do to be more inclusive as a teammate? Um, how can I better support, like what three things can I do to better support my black employees? And what I always say to them is I don't have a list of things you can do because A, it's completely dependent on the context you're working in and who those employees are. Um, and I actually flip the question around to them and I say, what kind of leader, rather than what can I do to be a more inclusive leader is what kind of leader do you want to be? Um, and let's work backwards from that. Do you want to be a leader who is curious and is open um, to getting things wrong and open to learning? Or do you want to be the leader who has all of the answers and always gets it right? Because those are two very different roadmaps for how you develop, you know, an inclusion paradigm from there. Um, and can, so I can think you that- create it though? Can you create an inclusion paradigm from a leadership team that has all the answers, doesn't want to hear feedback, and has their own way of doing things, can you do it? I mean, the paradigm for them would essentially be don't hire a diverse, a diverse, diverse team. If you don't, if you wanna be an inclusive leader, you're unwilling to be curious and you don't wanna have people giving you feedback and you don't wanna invite feedback and you don't wanna change your leadership style to adapt to your team to support them, I say don't hire anyone outside of your identity group because then you'll be a fine, you'll be a perfectly inclusive leader if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a manager to folks who identify um, within the same group as you, um, that is an option for you. But if that's not what you want, you're going to have to adapt your leadership style and focus less on what you do on a day-to-day -day basis and more on, you know, what are your what are your values? What are your um, priorities as a leader? And how do you reinforce those in every single um, decision you make? Um, and I love uh, this idea that like every decision that you make is a vote for, you know, it's kind of like a ballot uh, for the type kind of person you are or the kind of, you know, the type of person you are. Um, and so I think that 
I completely agree with you that there's no roadmap and there's no like set, there's no checklist, but it's all about the lens. It's adopting an inclusive leadership lens, which is um, accepting that you're going to get it wrong sometimes and focusing less on how to avoid getting it wrong and more on how to respond when you get it wrong and how to make sure that you're getting information um, from the people around you when you get it wrong um, and creating a space where those conversations can happen authentically. Um, and I think by nature of that context and that space that you build, you will become a better leader because the answers will be provided for you um, and the information will be provided for you and you can respond. Well, I think I think that provides some clarity, but I, I do have a question around innovation and specifics. So when you look at your business and you look at what you're doing now for over 400 employees at Webflow, what are you doing specifically to innovate in this area of DEI? Because we can, you know, we can put a lot of things on a checklist, but what do you feel like you've done that that top thing that has been real innovation that you can share with the audience to say, look, this is what I did. This was my game plan. So I think uh, the thing that has been probably the most challenging, and I also will say the most impactful as it tends to be, has been how we've innovated to create more transparency and alignment um, and just information about who is represented at our company, who is leaving our company, who is staying at our company, who is in leadership at our company. Um, and we've, we started just in the last year in 2021, where we started was we were using CultureAmp engagement surveys for our demographic data. And we probably had 40% unknown when it came to race and ethnicity and disability status and veteran status likely, which we hypothesized was because people filled out this engagement survey about their with really honest feedback about their experience at Webflow. And at the end, it asks them to self-identify um, optionally, of course. But um, uh, the last thing that you want, especially if you know you're one of very few at the company, is to put your identity next to these really honest and raw answers with this risk that you run of like, and, and of course, CultureAmp designs a survey, so this doesn't happen, but it's only natural that people feel that sense of, ooh, better not, because you never know. They might have been it's punished for that in the past work, in their previous workplaces. We don't know what kinds of trauma people are bringing with like what's happened when they've disclosed their identity and how they've been treated previously. So. We were getting our data. We had, you know, so much missing data. It was only updated every six months. So a hiring manager would come to me and say, "Hey, I want to focus on, uh, you know, hiring a more diverse team. Where do I start? Like, can I get some? Can I get an idea of where my team is now?" And I would be able to give them five-month-old data. And we were in hypergrowth, so we were hiring. Like the team had doubled in size by that point, and all of a sudden that data is useless. Um, so what we did and what most companies I think are afraid to do because of all of the legal considerations, the compliance considerations, HR is like, no, 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 no risk, no risk, please. Like, don't ask any questions right. and let people fill right. that out. Like, not a, not a priority is we said what, like, we need this information and in any other area of our business, we would never let oh, this information is hard to get. Oh, this information is like legally yeah. challenging to make right. sure that we collect in the right way. They would never let that be a reason why they just stopped doing it. So we business approached owners, it with this. Right? Right. Yeah, Mariah, we, we approached 
would exactly. never. Let that you can't do it. You can't yeah. get away with that. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. No. It's too difficult to find that information. That's not a. Yeah. That's not a business um, line that you can use and get away no. with. But in in yeah. DEI, somehow people are are using that to yeah. as a crutch to say it's yeah. a little too scary. Let's not yeah. go there. Oh, and other companies aren't doing it. So like we need to right. like they want to wait. They want to wait for another company to do it first because then they're going to be like, okay, now it's left. Like now we don't have to risk doing that. So the conversation I had with my leadership team was I was like, sure, changing the way that we collect this data and doing it differently, there's risk that we're taking with that. However, it is a higher risk for us to not do anything about this because we will have no idea whether like it could five months could go by our demographic representation could have imploded. Like we could have hired no new, you know, underrepresented groups in that five months. And now we find out six months later. And at that point, it's way too late. We're gonna have to like triple the amount of investment in hiring at that point that we could have done over time, um, you know, two weeks after we noticed that hiring trend was happening. Um, and so, we just approach it. We were like, let's, let's dream, dream big is one of our web flow core behaviors. And we said, let's, let's just forget for a second about any constraints. Let's assume that we can make anything work. What would be perfect? Like, what would we want to see? And what we came to is we wanted to be able to have a dashboard internally, um, that we could update at any time with the latest new hire. So like every new hire would fill out this information, um, during onboarding so that on any given day we can say as of today here's what our demographic makeup looks like um, and we would be able to filter by department by team even by manager so if a, ma a specific manager wanted to say I want to tie an OKR to what my hiring rates are for underrepresented groups we could track that on a daily basis if we needed to um, and we could look at hiring rates over time so we could make sure like in Q1 Here's how, and you know, the breakdown for engineering's hiring rates when it comes to gender. Um, in Q2, let's make sure that at the very least, even if we're not trying to like create ambitious goals, that we're maintaining that or improving that. Um, and that like over time, we can make sure that every department can set relative goals for themselves as opposed to all being held to the same standard when they're all starting from different points. So it was a big dream that we had, but we just went and said, let's, try it. Let's try to make this happen. And we did. We built, we reconfigured our demographic data collection so that we um, now collect all of that information in Sapling, which is our HRIS system. Um, so everyone who onboards at Webflow is given a set of optional demographic fields to complete. Um, we educate people during onboarding and um, at least twice a year in an all-team presentation about what that information is for, how we make sure it's protected and anonymized, and why it's important and why it matters for, for the team to fill it out. Um, and how, you know, it takes two minutes for people to do. So um, it's like a very, very simple way of supporting our DEI efforts, which usually does not, you know, that's usually not a thing that you can kind of do something in two minutes and it actually helps DEI at Webflow. Um, and we created, you know, like I, I created a dashboard from scratch because there's nothing that exists like this um, in the world of software um, that's protected enough. Um, and now we have a demographic dashboard that does all of the things that we wanted it to do. And we worked with our legal team to make sure that it was compliant. Um, we have been rolling it out in 
stages to make sure that we're testing to make sure that at no point can you filter um, down to in a single person so that like no one's self-identified. Um, we started with pronouns first because those are disclosed on people's Slack profiles. So it's not private information. Um, and we've used race and ethnicity as well, but have made sure we've, you know, we've reported in a way that's completely anonymized. Um, and now we've done all the things that we set out to do. And it was just a matter of deciding what we wanted to do, um, deciding that the risks to doing it were lower than the risks to not doing it and getting the right people in the room to make it happen. Um, and I think that's probably the thing that we've done that's been the most innovative um, on this front. And it's making anything possible for us going forward. Wow, I, I love that story. You, you start to unpack it. It starts with people analytics. Um, mm -hmm. It moves into uh, visual representation of groups, uh, protecting people's privacy, um, being thoughtful about the way you roll it out. Um, and you mentioned one thing um, that sort of perked my ears up, which was this idea that, you know, those in HR didn't want this to happen. This was scary. Right. This was something new and different and a little scary. And and I think, you know, those that are in HR have been there for a long time. A lot of their career has been compliance um, mm -hmm. or keeping the company from getting sued. Right. To, to say it differently. Uh, don't get us in trouble. I don't want the lawyers in my office. And that that mindset has to shift. And that's what this is all about. That's the talent management or top down management approach. And what you're saying is, no, hold on a second. We're going to lift people up and we're going to do it with facts, data and logic. And we're going to be able to measure this so that we can improve um, not only perception, but most importantly, the actual hiring practices of our leaders. And, and yeah. I think that that is just um, I mean, that's where we all need to be. Right. We, we all need to be doing things like this. And uh, that's a perfect example for those listening that are out there that are struggling to figure out how to do this themselves. That's a beautiful example of how to create a model and ultimately um, put it in play uh, for mm -hmm. your business. So how I got to ask, how long did that take you from from concept and vision to yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe the first working prototype and then where we are today? Yeah. Uh, Tom, that's a very good question, and I can answer it in two different ways. It took me about 11 mental breakdowns in a, in a Google Studio dashboard, which is yep. very difficult to use for anyone out there who's ever used Google Studio. It's great, like Data Studio, awesome, pro awesome software. There, like no no undo function there. So sometimes you mess something up and the whole thing breaks. Um, so about like I would say eleven mental breakdowns, and then right. I would say probably seven months of from the point where we first announced to the company, you know, that we first agreed we're going to do this, we're going to transfer, we're going to switch over to Sapling. Um, we needed to have everyone fill out their profile information in Sapling who was already onboarded. And so first we were like, okay, we're gonna hope that if we make this announcement, we can convince people to go provide this information so that we can validate our hypothesis that this can be a better source of data and that we'll have more data to work with. And so at each point we, we went in, you know, it's like a very scientific approach because all we're doing is entering with an, a hypothesis about this way, we know this way isn't working. Our hypothesis is this way will work better, but we are also open to new information as we try things about the ways it's not working. And I think um, 
yeah, so it took about seven months from start to finish to get a working prototype of the dashboard and then probably another three months of like working within the dashboard to kind of work through any bugs or work through any kind of areas of confusion um, to build in more reports to cover attrition. And, you know, so we could see snapshots of where our team was in 2019 versus 2020 versus 2021. Um, but we are now working with a very, very solid prototype. Um and dashboard. I love the way you said that. I mean, that that's what we talked about at the beginning around authenticity and uh, vulnerable uh, conversations and 11 mental breakdowns. That's all it took. Yeah, it's definitely a good way to quantify a lot of, I feel like a lot of DEI leaders will be like, okay, I know where that is in terms of level of difficulty based on like how many breakdowns you had doing that, that thing. Um, but it's all right. We have therapists for that. Uh, well, I, look, I, uh, whatever you're doing, I think uh, you're taking the company forward and you're taking um, all of us forward with some of, some of your actions. But I want to go back. I want to go back to a word you used earlier that we didn't unpack. Um, you had mentioned when we were talking about um, some of the highlights and some of the things you were most proud of that you're really proud of your work in developing affinity groups. So for those um, that don't know what an affinity group is, can you just start with the definition, what an affinity group is, help us all understand what that is um, before we before we jump into the next piece. Great, yes, I am happy you asked that question. Um, so an affinity group is similar to what other companies call employee resource groups or business resource groups. Um, it is a group that is designed to support and create space for um, folks who share a social identity, such as um, a racial or ethnic identity, um, or maybe their caregiving status, maybe their disability status or veteran status. Um, and so we currently have, to give you an example of what types of groups fall into this category, uh, we have a black affinity group, we have a disability at Webflow affinity group, we have a queer flow group, which is our LGBTQIA plus community, um, we have a caregivers group, and we have an Asians at Webflow group. So typically they fall along the lines of groups that are marginalized or otherwise face barriers to inclusion, belonging, um, and opportunity in the workplace. Great. And, and so now that we understand the definition and we understand what Webflow is doing to compartmentalize this for individuals, how does that actually play out in the work that you do? Whether it's uh, if I'm a part of a group, uh, does that help me get promoted? Um, am I able to go outside and bring in recommendations of that affinity group, people that I admire and respect in other workplaces and try to get them hired at Webflow? How does that all come together? It's a good question. So um, our approach to affinity groups is very much one that is grounded in kind of the approach of um, community building and mobilizing and social justice, which is, it is as a business, it is not our job to say, you form an affinity group and then you do these things for the business because um, and that's what a lot of businesses ask of their ERGs is they say like, okay, we're, we're funding you and we're supporting you if there's always this conditional factor of like, if you can help us hire more people or if you can be a spokesperson for how great our culture is. Um, and so our approach from the start, and this is what I have, you know, I, I made sure our leadership team was aligned on this. I said, if we are launching this program, 
we are compensating people for their time because this is work they are doing outside of their core role responsibilities. And that this is work that is at the end of the day, if it's successful, um, increasing retention for these underrepresented groups who would otherwise be at risk for leaving Webflow. It is increasing engagement. It is increasing belonging and all of these things that we are trying to work to improve on a systemic basis of, uh, across our business. So those barriers and gaps don't exist, but we can't fix those things right away. So I was like, these affinity groups are here to really add immense value to the business. So we have to compensate them and we have to recognize their work and we have to agree that just their very existence is valuable and is impactful and is worthy of recognition and support and investment. Um, and we got that taken care of. So that was something I said, you know, we're not doing the same thing as like a Google or Facebook where they're like, you know, help us hire more people like you or say nice things about our company on on uh, social media. Um, so if I was in HR and, and I heard yes. you say that, right? That we're going to compensate people. Can you just be really straightforward? Like, how do you do it? Is it a bonus? Do you get a bump in your salary? Is it part of your annual review? Like, if I was part of an affinity group, mm. what, what would that look like for me if I worked at Webflow? Yeah. So I think our like this answer is like extremely like I feel like the way we approach this was I just tried to think about like what's what's the logical thing to do? Like, yeah. put aside all the like what's the right thing to do? What's fair? It's like let's think about what information we need to make this decision and what information we needed to make the decision of how do we compensate these leaders is what are their responsibilities? Let's think about like we approach this as we would if we were hiring for a new role. We drafted a job description, like a role description for like, what does an affinity group leader do? Um, how many hours a week or a month are they doing this work? Um, and what level, if you think about like IC work versus manager work versus VP level work, like what level does this work fall in in terms of responsibility and impact? And we eventually got to the point where we agreed, this is kind of like a program manager level role where they are, you know, they're managing a lot of moving pieces, they're dealing with logistics and, um, you know, there's a lot of work they have to take on in terms of like building a strategy and developing a strategy. So it's really strategic work. And then what we did is we just said, okay, what's the, what's the average salary for a program manager at Webflow? Let's break that down into an hourly rate. Um, and let's use that to, and then we just multiply that hourly rate by the number of hours that we expect from each leader. And that was kind of how it was like very straightforward. It was, so now um, our leaders get, um, at the beginning it was $300, it was $100 a month. So we got to the point where we were like, it's it's usually like two to four hours of work per month, um, give or take, um, but we're increasing that now um, so that it can reflect the amount of growth that we've seen in the groups themselves. Um, and then another area of compensation is in uh, their performance reviews. I write personal reviews for every single one of our um, affinity group leaders with the work they've done, the impact of that work, um, and how it demonstrates our core behaviors at Webflow, because that's something we consider in our performance reviews, um, for all of their managers to see, because I want them to, I want their managers to know, like they're taking on a leadership responsibility and role. If you're considering promoting them to manager, here's what I've seen them do um, that a manager, like a successful leader at Webflow would do. Um, and so it, it, it hopefully will help also promote them at the company. Um, so yeah, that's how we think about it. But that's a great question. Yeah, I think I think that's fabulous, and that's that's a bit of a toolkit uh, for others to be able to replicate if they want to do some of this good work that that you're doing at Webflow. Uh, you know, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you and uh, and find out uh, and link up with you, what what would be the best way to find you and track you down? Oh, 
my parents are wondering the same thing. <laughs> I, have, I have about 10 unresponded to text messages from them. Um, I will be honest that uh, during this during this season, I am not the most responsive on the channels, the social media channel, the LinkedIn channel, the, the email channel. However, I am pretty active on Twitter. So you can uh, talk to me on Twitter. It's just at Mariah Driver. I think it's like an underscore in there somewhere, but I think if you, if you search me and search Webflow, you'll you'll definitely find my handle. Um, and then uh, people can also email me, Mariah at Webflow.com. Again, no guarantees about email, you know, response time, but uh, it'll happen eventually if you're asking the right questions. Um, and then LinkedIn, we post a lot of our work on LinkedIn. And then obviously, if you have any interest in joining the team at Webflow and like doing this work with us, um, Webflow.com slash jobs. Uh, you can get in touch with us there and uh, let me know if you're interested in any role opportunities here. Well, uh, that's uh, fabulous information. So we've got Twitter covered, LinkedIn covered, uh, the website covered, um, and, uh, and an email as well. So for those that want to connect with a really forward-thinking leader, um, I think this would be uh, a great place to start. Uh, my takeaway from today, you're doing a couple of things really, really well. You are innovating uh, beyond what others are doing. You are generating stable revenue for your company by providing uh, a diverse uh, population of employees, which creates more revenue. The studies all show it. And I think my favorite is that you're just disrupting the status quo and you're doing it knowing that there's fear, but doing it anyway. And for that, I'm very grateful. This is the epitome of talent empowerment and how you're lifting people up. And I'm, I'm very grateful for the work that you do and thrilled that you joined us on the show today. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure to be here. And um, I will say just one thing that I uh, has really helped me in this work for anyone who is trying to do this work in your organization um, is, you know, not when, when you name the risk of like, what is the risk of trying this thing, let's say trying to disrupt the status quo in this way, um, is also asking the question of what's the risk to not doing that um, and presenting that risk to your leaders, um, to your team, um, the risk of not trying to make things better for the people who work for your organization. Um, and that's a human experience and it's a risk that's really high um, and it's important. And so um, just for anyone listening, um, and I think anyone in HR, in people org, um, is just asking that question of like, what is the risk if we don't try? Um, and I think that if we can continue to ask that question, we will get closer and closer to really centering people um, at the heart of this work and uh, being willing to take risks to do the right thing for them. Beautifully said. Thank you for closing out the show with such elegance. Uh, Mariah Driver, uh, if you wanna find her, please do. Thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Talent Empowerment. For more information on our show and today's guests, head to the show notes or visit talentempowerment.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an opportunity to empower yourself and your people. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps the show grow. And a final thank you to our sponsor, LegUp, and their people development program, Talent Insurance. To learn more about how they guarantee retention, employee well-being, and employee performance through one-on-one -on -one professional coaching, visit legup.com. That's L-E-G-G-U-P.com.